Well, it was March 6th, 1981 in Germany, the third day of a trial for a monster named Klaus Krabowski being tried for the rape and murder of a seven-year-old girl. The mom of the victim brought a gun with her into the courtroom, and during the trial, fired seven rounds, six of them into Klaus's back, and he died almost instantly. She lowered her gun and was arrested peaceably. The charge was reduced from murder to manslaughter, and she served several years for one of the most famous acts of vigilante justice in my lifetime. After she was released, she admitted to shooting Grabowski after careful consideration in order to enforce the law upon him and to prevent him from spreading further lies about her daughter during the course of the trial. We all can empathize with a a mother, a father, who has been so painfully wronged in such a manner. We can empathize with the pain that comes from the delay of justice and the often insufficient penalty that is imposed upon those who commit such crimes. There are many miscarriages of justice in human society, and that is why we are thankful that there is a God who is the final judge, the one who is going to take vengeance upon every action that requires vengeance. In our day, he has appointed human law courts to be instruments of his justice, They are imperfect instruments, but they are a blessing to us. We're thankful for the police officers. We're thankful for the judges. We're thankful even for the lawyers and for all who are involved in the legal process of bringing some measure of justice, punishment, upon the wrongdoers. But we look forward to a a more full execution of justice, a more sufficient vengeance upon evildoers, And we can empathize with those who take the law into their own hands, but we must always remember what the Lord God himself has said. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 is going to be our focus this morning. We're following up with the opening of the seals. Beginning last week, we looked at seals 1, 2, 3, and 4, which were a unit that was tied together as God sent forth his judgments into the world by the agency of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this week we come to the fifth seal. As we looked in last week to the first four seals in verses 1 through 8, one of our key takeaway thoughts, applications from the text, is that we must see the world as God sees it. And God sees the world as worthy of judgment that we look at a man like Klaus Grabowski and we say this man is worthy of the death penalty. However, God looks at all of humanity and says the penalty for sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that God will execute justice upon the world in the time, in the way that he has determined according to his own wisdom and knowledge. And so as we unfold the judgments of God in the book of Revelation, a very sober, a very serious selection in God's word. We, throughout the course of the study, will recognize that the world we live in is indeed judgment-worthy. 
There may not be a passage in Revelation that highlights that as directly or as powerfully as the passage that we have this morning in verses 9 through 11. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, we follow upon, as I said, the first four seals, the white horse and its rider, the red horse who brought the war, the black horse, and the famine that follows in the course of the wars, and then the pale horse, death. That is a result of this spirit of conquest leading man to fight against one another, leading to the death of possibly, if we understand it correctly, 25% of the world's population through this course of wars that God is going to unleash in his judgment upon the earth. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs. That's what we have in verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together. Follow along in your Bibles as I read out loud for us the word of God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here we have the cry of the martyrs and also God's response to that cry in the fifth seal. The sixth seal, which we'll look into next week, is a a global catastrophe, worldwide disaster. And then the seventh seal is yet to be revealed in future studies. That's where we are and that's where we're going. This morning, looking into the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs, as we read there in verses 9 through 11. Now, the question that I'm going to pose for us here at the beginning of our study, before we get into the details of the text, is why is the fifth seal apparently so different from the first four seals, and also the sixth and seventh seal that we'll eventually get to? The first four seals are actions that are taking place in heaven, but that it's sent forth quickly into the earth, and it seems like there's an immediate consequence, there's an immediate judgment that falls out upon mankind, whether it's the war, the famine, the pestilence, the death that comes through the wild beasts of the earth. There's this judgment that is happening, whereas the fifth seal doesn't seem to contain any judgments that actually happen upon the earth, but instead it's just this prayer and answer to prayer in God's heavenly throne room, and there's a word of delay, that there's a time period, there's a waiting that is going to take place before this prayer is completely answered. And so the fifth seal has a very different feeling from the other four seals, and then the two that are going to follow in its wake. And so that's the question, why? Why does God put this fifth seal here in this way? It's not quite what we expect as we're reading through the book, and that stands out. If you see something in the Bible and you're like, oh, that's different, I wonder why that's there. Well, you dig in, you look at the details, you gather as much information as you can, and then you use that to answer those questions. Let's do that this morning. The first element of the text, the details that I want to look at in order to answer that first question is the altar. You see that in verse 9. When Christ, that's he, opened the fifth seal of this book of God's decrees that he alone is worthy to open, as we studied in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, when he, Christ Jesus, opens the fifth wax seal upon this scroll, then John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. 
Now, this is the first time that the altar appears in the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 were all about this heavenly throne room, this heavenly scene that John saw. But in chapters 4 and 5, he didn't mention any altar. But now he mentions an altar, and he refers to it as the altar. That would reference the idea that this is an altar that we should already know about, even though he hasn't yet talked about it. And we should know about it because it is a reference back as the book of Revelation draws upon all that the prophets have said. God has spoken by his prophets, and each one has added to our understanding, building up to this final revelation. And so as we're reading through the book of Revelation, God expects us to know what has come previously in his book as he builds upon that. And in God's heavenly throne room, which is like a temple to God's holy glory in the spiritual realm, there is an altar. And we first learned about this altar in God's heavenly throne room through the construction of the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was a picture, an earthly representation of the heavenly throne room of God. And so when Isaiah saw a vision of God's throne room, he saw an altar, very much like what you would have seen in the temple in this heavenly throne room as well. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, this burning angel, that's what seraphim means, surrounding the throne, declaring God's holiness. He flies to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And so there's this altar in Isaiah chapter 6, and this is giving us the imagery of the same altar in Revelation chapter 6. And instead of a coal being taken and being focused on, instead what we have is under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. And so that's our second detail in the text. We gather together our information so that then we can make informed conclusions about the questions that we have. Revelation 6-9 talks about the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Now notice that word witness. That word witness is the word in Greek from which we get our word martyr. When you go into a courtroom in the Greek world, you would call your witnesses. But the Greek word is martyros. It just means someone who testifies, someone who witnesses. But because Christianity had so many people who were testifying of their faith in Jesus Christ and then being executed for that faith in Jesus Christ, the word for witness actually became our word for a Christian who gives his life for his faith. Or, as the text puts it, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Now, the word slain here, you're going to recognize as one that has come up in previous studies. This is now the third time that we focused on that word because it first was referenced to Jesus Christ. Jesus appears in Revelation 5 as a lamb who has been slain, and yet he is alive. And then, in the first four seals, as war comes upon the earth, the red horse and its rider are granted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Same word. They slayed Christ. Now Christ is giving them a sword to slay each other with, and they do it because of the evil that is in their hearts. And not only did they slay Christ, and not only are they going to slay one another, but also they have slain those who have testified concerning the word of God. The word of God is what we have throughout the entire scripture. It's the special revelation of God. 
We know God in two ways. We know God through his general revelation, that is his creation. All that God has made declares that there is a good God, a powerful God, a wise God whom we owe worship to. Mankind rejecting that light of general revelation has been given the light of special revelation. Special revelation is the verbal communication of God in written form. That's our Holy Bible. And as we testify of all that God has revealed about himself, about sin, about salvation, about his plan for the future, that is obnoxious to the world. They cannot tolerate the word of God because of the hatred that is in their hearts towards God, and that causes them to kill the messenger, right? Don't kill the messenger is what we like to say. Well, the world hates the message of God. They can't get at God anymore because Christ is in heaven. So instead, they kill his messengers. That's what we see going on. That's where these souls under the altar have come from. Now, the question also arises, well, why are they under the altar? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. There are actually two altars in the Old Testament tabernacle. The first one was in the courtyard surrounding the tent itself. And in the courtyard, there was an altar for burnt offerings. And the sacrifices were actually burned on that altar. The blood of the sacrifice was poured down at the base of the altar. So if this is referring to that outer altar in the courtyard, it's the altar of burnt offering and that they are pictured as having been the sacrifice to God as they testified and were killed for speaking the word of God, the martyrs. And the blood would be poured out. And their, their blood is their life, their soul, and that's the, the imagery that's being developed here. Although there is a second option that the altar here is corresponding to the altar of incense that was inside the tent of meeting and also inside the temple as it was later patterned after the tabernacle. And so if that's the imagery, then it's as if their prayers are ascending up as incense before God. And many think that's the proper interpretation. Others think, no, we should associate it with the altar of burnt sacrifice in the courtyard. Some say, well, actually, it's being combined. And you have the imagery of the burnt offering and the prayers of incense, both with kind of a a unified altar here in God's heavenly throne room. I'm not too concerned about which one of those you prefer. I, I tend towards the second, or I should say the third, that it's actually a mixture of both imagery being brought together here. And there's good evidence for that as we continue through the book and have reference to the prayers of the saints being like incense but also the idea here of being slain as a sacrifice to God. So I I do tend towards the idea that this is both altars being drawn from in this imagery. Now, they have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. Revelation 12, 11. Before we get to the third point, here's a verse talking about how the martyrs have conquered him. And if you turn to Revelation 12, you could see that the him is referring to Satan. The enemy, Satan, has been conquered because Christ is the one who has been slain, and he's the one in whom we conquer and whom we triumph, by the word of their testimony. Notice that. That's exactly what John is referring to here. They were slain because of the testimony that they had borne and the word of God, the word of their testimony. And notice this, they love not their lives even unto death. And we're going to come back to that thought in our application at the end, that we conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and if we love our lives, not even unto death. 
All right, so then our third detail that we should focus on in the passage is in verse 10 with the prayer that these martyrs raise to God as it is recorded in verse 10, crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the prayer. This is called an imprecatory prayer. You probably never hear the word imprecatory outside of this context. It's not a word that gets used a lot. But it's a a word that has become a, a big part of Christian terminology for many of the prayers that we find in Scripture in which judgment, justice, a curse of the law is called down upon those who are God's enemies, the enemy of God's Christ, and the enemies of God's people. These are imprecatory prayers, and we find many of them in Scripture. The book of Psalms has many different kinds of prayers, but one of the dominant forms of prayer in the book of Psalms is this imprecatory prayer. Notice the question that is in the prayer in verse 10, how long before you will judge and avenge? That question, how long, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. God will judge God will avenge, but the cry of the martyrs is, when? How long before you are going to bring this justice? The mother, in our opening story, she wanted swift justice. She didn't want to wait for the trial to drag on, for all of the lies to be spoken by the perpetrator. She wanted justice now, and you can understand that desire. And that's the desire that is in the heart of this prayer, We want justice now. And God says, you have to wait. I'm going to do it in my time. But let's take a look at some of the Psalms and some other parts in Scripture that have similar ideas. Here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God speaking about the first murder that was recorded in history, that happened in history, not just recorded, but the first murder in human history, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And God came to Cain and asked him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood, Abel, is crying to me from the ground. So there's this voice crying out to God for justice. And that is really what is being drawn upon. That same imagery is here. The souls of the martyrs, their blood being poured out of the altar, their blood is crying out for vengeance. Judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They are praying to the sovereign Lord. That's something else I wanted to highlight here in the text. When it says sovereign Lord, we get our word despot from this word sovereign Lord. It indicates a ruler with absolute power and authority. Now, while this is a proper definition of the word, it has come to be used more commonly, and it has the connotation of this second definition, one who exercises power tyrannically, a person exercising absolute power in a brutal or oppressive way. That is not the way that it's being used here. This is the way that it's being used here. Every word has multiple uses. And so you want to be careful that you understand what use of the word is in each context. And so when we're talking about God's despotic rule, we're not talking about the power of a tyrant who is brutal or oppressive, but we're talking about absolute power, absolute authority. And that's what is contained in this word, and this is the way the martyrs address God on his throne, that you are the one who has absolute power. You are the one who has absolute authority, and that's why we are addressing you 
with our petition for justice. It is your right, it is your responsibility, and we look to you for that judgment. A ruler with absolute power and authority. Now, as we continue then looking into the Psalms, we see that this prayer is constant throughout the book of Psalms, starting in Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Not a question of if, but a question of when. How long do we have to wait for God's judgment? Psalm 13, verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Have you ever felt this way? You're being wronged, you're being spoken against, you're being abused, you're being mistreated, and you're praying that truth would come to light, that justice would be done, that your name would be cleared and vindicated, and you say, how long before truth wins? How long before lies are shown to be lies? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You look in the world and you see the injustice, you see the evil, and you just wonder, when is God going to do something about all of this? Psalm 35, which was in our scripture reading, has the same question. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. It's a messianic psalm, speaking of God's servant, corresponding to Jesus Christ, God's chosen king. Psalm 74, verse 10 How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? You see, an attack on God's people is an attack on God. And is God just going to sit by and do nothing as people revile his name, as people murder his children, as people speak lies against the truth? How long is God going to put up with it? Psalm 90, verse 13, the Psalm of Moses. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Don't you see how your servants are being handed over to the slaughter every day? Don't you see how they are killed, how they are burnt alive? How long? And then Psalm 94, verse 3. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? Psalm 119, the longest psalm. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? You see, the psalms have this constant refrain, calling for judgment, calling for vengeance, calling for justice. That's what we want. Imprecatory prayers are not sinful. I hope you see that. I hope you understand that. Some imprecatory prayers in the Bible are, are so emotional, they're so shocking that they almost sound sinful in a desire for vengeance. But they are not. Imprecatory prayers, especially those that we find in Scripture, are not sinful. Does this contradict what Jesus taught when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Isn't it a more spiritual and more Christ-like manner instead of asking God to judge those who persecute us? Wouldn't it be better to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who are wrongfully mistreating us? Remember Stephen in his prayer as he was being stoned to death, praying for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him? So how do we reconcile these imprecatory prayers together with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the example of godly men? Well, these are not mutually exclusive. Listen, there is a time for mercy 
and there is a time for judgment. And we as God's children, we recognize his right to determine those times. It's not for me to decide when is the time for mercy and when is the time for judgment. It's for God to decide when is the time for mercy and when is the time for judgment. And do you know what God has decided? He has decided that today is a day of grace. Today is a day of long-suffering. Today is a day when God continues to permit the wicked to kill the righteous, like Cain slew Abel, and that Cain gets to keep on living. And God even protects Cain so that no one takes vengeance upon him, but he can go and live his life. God says today is a day of salvation, but he says it's not always going to be that. There is a day of vengeance. There is a day for justice. And God, when he brings that day, he's going to bring it in full force, full measure. That's what this book of Revelation is all about. The end of the day of grace and the beginning of the day of judgment. We will see as we continue through the book. As God has determined that this is a time of grace, a day of grace, so his children are in the world praying for those who persecute us. We're in the world not cursing others, saying things like, God damn you for the evil that you have done, as so many non-Christians so flippantly say in their conversation. But instead, Christians bless. They pray for They seek the salvation of those who are so horribly abusing them. We are not calling down curses on people today, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place to ask God for justice and for judgment. Remember, we must see the world as judgment-worthy, and that's why we're praying for their salvation. And that's why we also delight in justice When it comes. Another psalm, Psalm 79, verse 10. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Isn't that what the nations say? The United Nations in council, the leaders of the world, where is the God of these Christians? He's not doing anything. He's not going to stop us. We can do whatever we want. The world is ours. If he exists, he's far distant. He doesn't care. He's not watching. Nobody knows what we're doing. Nobody's going to hold us accountable. The nations say, where is their God? And in response to that, the heart does have a proper desire for God to show himself in judgment. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. If it was your child who was killed, you might understand these prayers better. But for you who have suffered so little, it's easy for you to be gracious. It's easy for you to stand off and say, oh, I'm far too spiritual to ever pray for judgment to come upon people in the world. Maybe you just haven't suffered. Maybe it's very easy for you to bear injustice because you've borne so little of it. And when you even begin to suffer the tiniest bit of injustice... You're crying out and asking for God's help. 
I don't think Christians in America in the 21st century are in any position to judge imprecatory prayers. Jeremiah said, there's coming a day, a day of the Lord, a day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. That's what the book of Revelation is about that day, the day of vengeance. And the martyr's blood cries out for that day to their father. A father's vengeance, a father's justice. I was reading this week about dad dramas, the TV shows that dads love to watch. And you know what's so common among dad dramas? It's the ability to punish those who have done evil. The ability to bring justice to those who have harmed those that you love and want to protect. We have so many stories about this, so many movies, so many television shows, and and we love to see the justice. Finally, someone is able to stop those people and bring their own evil deeds upon their heads. But when God steps in as a father to bring justice to those who hate and murder his children, we say, oh no! You can't do that. Hypocrites. If anyone should be able to judge the murderers of his children, it is God. One more verse, Luke 19, 7 and 8. The words of Jesus. The same Jesus who said, love your enemy, pray for your enemies. He also said, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? How long, O Lord? It seems to us like he's delaying long, but not to God. It doesn't seem like he's delaying long. I tell you, Jesus says, he will give justice to them speedily. So just a little while, just wait a little while, is what he tells his children. Let's talk about another key word here in verse 10, and that is those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. This is the second use of this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, in the book of Revelation, and it's going to be used 10 times in total. And this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, it connotes humanity in rebellion against God. That's what the earth dwellers are. It's humanity hostile to God in open rebellion to their creator. It is tied to the idea that they have no place in heaven. All they have is this earth underneath Satan that they're trying to wrestle away from the hands of God. That's an earth dweller. Someone who hates the creator, someone who wants to take the earth for himself, someone who wants nothing to do with the God who can tell them what is wrong and what is right, but that they can decide for themselves, be masters of their own ship. That's the earth dweller, as opposed to the Christians whose citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The earth dwellers are mentioned first in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Turn back a couple of pages to Revelation 3.10. Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia, a church that was suffering, a church that was being spoken against, a church that was having many difficulties brought into their life because, as it says in verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. And here's the promise to this church. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try who? 
those who dwell on the earth. There are those who dwell on the earth, and there are those who are awaiting the Savior from heaven. And the hour of trial that God is bringing upon the earth, he tells his children, you be faithful, and I'll keep you from that hour. It's coming to test the earth dwellers. The hour of God's wrath, the hour of God's judgment, it's not prepared for his family. It's prepared for those who have murdered his family. The earth dwellers. As we continue throughout the book, you'll see this phrase time and time again. But for time's sake, I'm going to move on to our next detail. Revelation 6.11, heaven's response. So back in Revelation chapter 6, after we've identified the altar, after we've identified the martyrs, after we've identified the imprecatory prayer and justified that, now in verse 11, we see heaven's answer. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The first thing to notice here is the giving of the white robe. This is not the first time we've had reference to the giving of a white robe. It was promised to the overcomer in Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We'll see it again in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And also, we'll see it at the end of the book, at the great wedding feast that is the wedding of the Lamb, in Revelation 19, verses 8 and 9, the white robe signifies reward. The white robe is the wonderful blessing that God gives to those who have been faithful to God, even to the point of death. Secondly, they are told that they need to wait a little longer. That word rest is the word for waiting. And I think the idea here really is focused on they waiting for a little while. They have been waiting. They have to wait a little bit longer until a certain time. And what is that certain time? Notice that word until. Once again, it's not a question of if God is going to judge and avenge. It's a matter of when God is going to judge and avenge. God says it's going to be in a little while, and he says it's going to be after the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. That is, the number of martyrs. Their fellow servants and their fellow brothers are two ways of describing the same group of people, but these two descriptions of this group of people are further described as those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You know what's fascinating about this? This indicates that there is a certain number of martyrs that God has predetermined in history. That God, being absolutely sovereign, being the despot, the ruler over all, is not looking down and saying, oh, I lost another one. I didn't intend that to happen. But that God, from the beginning, foreordained the good works that each Christian is going to do. And if he has appointed you or I to do the ultimate good work, of laying down our actual physical life in testimony for the word of God, that's a good work that God has planned and a good work that God has predestined. And he has a certain number. What this text reveals to us is that certain number of martyrs is going to be completed before God pours out the vengeance that he is longing to pour out upon the earth dwellers. Fellow servants and brothers, that's what we are. Servant is our humble relationship to God. 
we must always remember that we are just slaves in God's household. We are unworthy servants. We don't even deserve to be slaves in God's household. But the grace of God goes so far that not only does he make us servants in his household, but he makes us brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this wonderful family relationship, but we're not supposed to become proud or entitled or raise ourselves up, but we have a humble attitude as the brothers and sisters in God's household, remembering that we really are just unworthy servants. So it's wonderful to keep those two truths in balance. Don't think of yourself only as a servant. Don't think of yourself only as a brother, but recognize the truth of both of them and bring that together. That'll give you the right attitude as you serve in God's family, God's household. So our fellow servants, our fellow brothers, there are more yet to be killed in the sovereign plan of God. So now that we have looked at the details of the text, we're ready to answer our initial question. Why is the fifth seal different from the other seals? The other seals talk about these amazingly powerful and terrifying judgments that God is going to bring upon the earth. The fifth seal doesn't. It just says, you're going to have to wait, and there's going to be more martyrs. This reveals to us that in the decree of God, in his wisdom, in his plan, there's going to be a ramping up of hostility against God's children that is going to issue forth in more martyrs in this final period of time before Christ comes back that is going to be the final straw that is going to bring out the full wrath of God. That God allows a people, a nation, throughout biblical history to fill up the measure of their sins before he brings judgment upon them. And God in his sovereignty allows people a certain amount of time, a certain amount of freedom to manifest their wickedness, to manifest their rebellion, and to pile up their judgment-worthy deeds to heaven. And when it reaches a certain level, God says, that's it. Now, judgment. And that's the way it is with the sin of martyrdom. Perhaps the greatest sin of all, the killing of God's children. God going to allow the world to pile up their sins even more. God is going to allow the world to make themselves even more judgment-worthy so that when his judgment comes, it comes in its fullness. Jonathan Edwards spoke about this in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he talked about how sinners presumed upon the grace of God and thought, well, since I've done all these things and God hasn't judged me, That must mean that God is okay with what I'm doing, and I can just keep on doing it. And they presume upon the grace of God, and they fail to repent because they don't recognize that the long-suffering patience of God is designed to bring people to repentance. But refusing to repent, people just pile up more and more sin. And when you're sinning against grace, and you're sinning against favor, and you're sinning against clemency, that's even greater sin. When God is holding out his hands to you and saying, repent and come and be saved, and the world refuses, and they just keep on killing his children, they're piling up their sins to heaven. And when it reaches the predetermined point, then God will break the dam that has been holding back the waters of his wrath and his fury, and it will sweep over the world with unprecedented destruction. That's what the fifth seal is about. 
And we'll see it as we continue throughout the rest of the book. The, the book of Revelation keeps coming back to this. The fifth seal is referenced again and again. Let me show you a few examples. Revelation chapter 18, verse 24. Move towards the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 18. In Revelation 18, we have the judgment of the city of sin. Revelation reveals the judgment of God against the man of sin, against the world of sin. And here in Revelation 18 and 19, it's against the city of sin. And this is what it says about the destruction of Babylon the Great. It says in verse 24, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. It's the bloodshed, particularly the bloodshed of God's prophets and saints that brings the final judgment, the complete justice of God upon the city of this world. Look at Revelation 19, verse 2. As all of heaven is crying out in verse 1, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has what? He has avenged on her the blood of his saints. So all of the judgments that fall between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19, it's all connected to this, that God has foreordained more martyrs to be killed during this time and that as soon as that number reaches its completion, then God is going to answer that prayer. And he is going to bring his full vengeance upon those who dwell upon the earth. Turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. As we have discovered in our study of Revelation 6, it follows very closely the outline that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave of the final days in Matthew chapter 24. The Olivet Discourse is recorded not only in Matthew's Gospel, but also Mark and Luke. And here in Matthew 24, you see that Jesus talked about these false Christs that seem to correspond very well with the white horse, that spirit of conquest, in the first seal. Christ talks about war in verses 6 and 7, corresponding to the red horse. He talks about famine and the black horse, death and the pale horse. But he also talks about the martyrs. Look at Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. They will hate you for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the fifth seal, right there also in the Olivet Discourse, this future hatred issuing forth in bloodshed of those who love the word of God and who will not give it up. Now, this then causes us to issue forth the plea of mercy and grace to the persecutors of God's children in the world today. As Psalm 2 says, be wise, O kings of the earth. Be wise, you United Nations. Be wise, deep state in the United States. Be wise, you billionaires in the world. 
Don't persecute God's children. Don't murder and slay them. Don't disenfranchise them. Don't put them into prison. Don't think that you can poke God in the eye and that God is not going to strike you down with the almighty power that he has. God is giving warning to the nations. You touch my children and I will destroy you. He will avenge their blood. Listen to Psalm 72, verse 14. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. The final showdown is coming. The world's hatred of God, their enmity against God, will be on full display. God is holding it back, but he's going to remove that hand and he's going to allow the world to show what's really in their hearts by their hatred of those who love the name of Jesus. And he's going to do that for a reason. He's going to do that because that is the best way to show in history that the world is, in fact, judgment worthy. You who have been spared the hatred of the world in so many ways, you don't know. But you might. You might learn what it costs to hold on to the word of God, to not bend under the pressure that the world puts upon you and to pay the ultimate price. And then you will see your father step in and deal with those who hated him. So this then brings us to the second question, which I'm sure you're thinking right now. If it is God's decree for the end times that there are going to be many martyrs, does that mean that this is me? Does this mean that this is you? Does it mean that this is our children? Are they the ones that have been decreed to be martyred in the Great Tribulation if it is going to come soon? I don't think so. Revelation 3.10, we already looked at. Because you have kept the word of my testimony, I will also keep you from the hour that is coming upon the whole world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Therefore, I believe the best way of understanding those verses is that the church is going to be raptured before these events that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 6. But if not, if instead these events are taking place in the first half of the Great Tribulation and that we will be unnumbered among those martyrs if Christ should return soon, and if it is us and our children who have to suffer for the word of God, then I tell you this, do not be afraid. God will be with you. God will strengthen you. God will be with your children. He is faithful. He won't allow you to suffer beyond what you're able. He will give you power to stand. But you have no power in yourself. Our power is in him. So a few application questions. The first one we've already talked about, we may be tested. Are you ready for this exam? Are you ready to die for the one who died for you? Remember what we heard in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Is that the spirit that's in you? We may have the opportunity to show it.
Secondly, if that spirit is not in you, then you are not heaven's citizen and you are an earth dweller. And if that is the case, and if your heart grumbles against the justice of God and your heart says, no, God should never step in, God should never avenge, God should never bring judgments upon the world to the earth dwellers, then you need to fear God and to repent. There's two kinds of fear. There's the fear that runs away and hides and tries not to think about it. That's a foolish fear. Hiding your eyes and not thinking about it does not solve any problems. But then there's the kind of fear that faces reality and takes appropriate action. The reality is God is almighty. You need to face that and take action. The almighty offers you forgiveness. Take it. You can choose to fight against the almighty and continue to rebel against him but you should know what the end is going to be. Hiding your eyes to it is not going to change it. See the world the way God sees it. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us. You have loved us so much that you've called us your children. You've adopted us and and loved us as if we had never sinned. As if we had served you and loved you as faithfully as Jesus Christ himself. And so we are precious in your sight, not because of anything we have done or any rights that we have earned, but just because of your mercy and grace. Father, you have loved us and the world has hated us without cause. As we have gone into the world with a mission of mercy, as we have loved our wives and loved our children, as we have served humbly the way Jesus Christ served, we are repaid with slanders, with hatred, and even with death. Lord, I praise you that at the right time, you will avenge the blood of your children that we can read about, and we can hear about. It's still happening today. Your children are being slaughtered in the world just for the reason that they love your word and they believe in Jesus Christ. It's not happening here, but it is happening. You see, you know. You've bottled up your fury. You've held it back in a day of grace. And we magnify and praise your grace and your long-suffering, your mercy upon your enemies. But we recognize your right to judge. We recognize the beauty of justice. And we do long for that day, even as we also long for salvation for all who hate you currently. Lord, we glorify you for your grace and we glorify you for your justice. May you receive the glory in the church now and forevermore. Amen.